0: not that he bids you take it if you will, but that when you reject it, when you hate it, when you despise it, he has a power whereby he can change your mind, make you think differently from your former thoughts, and turn you from the error of his ways. Now, that's irresistible grace, and that is the mighty plan and power of the gospel— God doing it, converting, regenerating, and giving this gift of repentance. And so when I repented, was it my repentance? No, it was really the repentance that God gave me. Welcome to Let the Bible Speak. This is Pastor Ian Gallagher, and from the Free Presbyterian Church here in Cloverdale. We bid you welcome to join with us as we open the Bible today to Let the Bible Speak on Irresistible Grace. This is part two of the message. And do remember that you can hear these messages again if you go to our website or our podcast. For podcasters, of course, this is on iTunes. Just go to Let the Bible Speak, or if you go to our website, you can find these messages by date archived under Let the Bible Speak Radio. So I trust that God's Word will be a great blessing to you today and whenever you tune in. Irresistible grace, that is God drawing power. And here is another wonderful text in John 6, verse 44, No man can come to me and except the Father which hath sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So this drawing, this bringing a sinner, an individual, to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, leaving behind all the attitudes of the world and all the love of sin and all the rebellion to God, leaving all that behind and turning in repentance and faith is the drawing power of God. It is not the natural working of the human heart. It is God at work in the human heart, and the Lord promises that all that the Father draws, they come to Jesus, and he will receive them and raise them up at the last day that none will be lost. This is our message today from the pulpit of our church. Stay tuned with us. May the Lord minister to your heart, and draw you to himself today. So we come now to the second point of overcoming man's rebellion, giving repentance. Now, I spoke about uh, the problem of man's hostility and getting the, the door closed in your face. What is it that makes people want to close the door in your face? Well, sometimes uh, when we go with a church invitation, for example, and we say to someone, we'd love you to come to church to hear the gospel. And uh, then you get a little further into conversation is well, what do I have to do? Uh, you would say, well, you just come along and hear the way of salvation, and we'll pray that God gives you a new heart and that you change your life. Change my life? Close the door. It's over. Now, oh, Some people have an idea of church just being a nice ear-tickling time, a nice happy time, community-spirited and all that, but change my life, give up my, my pet hobbies and things that I love with all my heart. I have to give them up. The ways of sin, they would have to give them up. And so, God has to work repentance. Repentance is a change of mind so that the things that we once loved, we love no more. Now, you think of the biggest sinners you imagine— that God did this with. Those who were so far from God, and God gave them the miracle of repentance. Well, of course, Paul the apostle, he had to be stopped in his madness, persecuting the church. And right there, God gave him a repentant heart. He he came to hate what he did, sorrowful for his crimes of persecuting God's people. And he always called himself the chief of sinners for that reason that he persecuted the church. Paul, who was mad to oppose the church, became sorrowful over that very thing. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is not just flick the switch and do something different. It is to sorrow over sin. There's a sorrowing component in true repentance. I spoke about Nicodemus. Certainly, he had a new life, and when he came at, at, at the burial of Jesus to him in Babylon. We can see a new life in him. But I'm also thinking of the young woman in Acts 16. You know that chapter where Lydia was converted and uh, where the Philippian jailer was converted? There's also a young girl who was a sorcerer who made money for her slave masters, and she was a servant of the devil, a most unlikely person to be converted. And yet, she was converted. And she turned away from producing whatever these magic things were that her masters were making money off her. She had no more of it. She stopped. And that's what the gospel does. It stops people in the track of sin. And it gives them not only a recognition of their guilt, but the power to stop. Think of the woman that was taken in adultery. Jesus said to her, "'Go!' and sin no more this is the irresistible power and call of the gospel and so we learn that repentance is not the product of man's own heart repentance is god's gift and there are some very clear verses about that that directly says that god gives repentance turn with me please to acts 5 and verse 31. Acts 5, verse 31. Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a Savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There's the word give with the word repentance. It's a gift. God gives repentance. And then Acts 11, verse 18 Is another key text on this where God is the giver or the author of repentance. It doesn't come out of man's own heart. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And so God did it. These Gentiles, they were wicked dark, blinded sinners, but even Gentiles, were granted, given a gift of repentance toward God. Now, what about all those 3,000 converts in Acts chapter 1 and 2, where they were marvelously converted? How, how did they turn to God? All the mass of people who were turned to after crucifying Jesus, to seek repentance and turn to him. Well, we know at the Pentecost, the work of the Holy Spirit was mighty. It was when the Holy Spirit fell upon the city of Jerusalem and upon the people, and there were 3,000 converts. Now, what is the work of the Spirit? The work of the Spirit, according to John 16, verse 8 says, that when he is come, he will convict of sin... Of righteousness and judgment to come. And it is that work of the Spirit convicting that is the basis of true repentance. You can't have real gospel repentance without conviction. You can't have real gospel conviction unless people say, well, I don't want to stand at the judgment day and meet God with this burden. I want rid of this sin to convict judgment and righteousness. That's the work of the Spirit in the heart. And so, we can think of those 3,000 that were converted in the day of Pentecost. What happened? Conviction fell on them. Their hearts were pricked. And that's what Acts 2 tells us. They felt terrible. They realized the horrible thing they'd done. And they wanted to get right with God. They wanted to be righteous. And we are told in Acts 3.26, and I want to give you the direct quote here, Acts 3.26, that the result of Pentecost… Men turning back to God was really God turning them. You read at it here in Acts 3.26, "'And you, unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities.'" So could the people at Pentecost take the credit and say, well, we're glad we caught ourselves on and we repented ourselves? No, their repentance was the fruit of the Spirit bringing conviction and God by the Spirit turning them from their errors and their wrong ways, their guilt and their shame to believing in the message of the gospel. So who's going to take the glory for this repentance? It's going to be the Lord. He's the one that turned them. He's the one that sent the Spirit to them. He's the one who gave them the gift of repentance, and so it is a mighty work of the Lord. Here's a quote from Mr. Spurgeon. It's a very short one, but I think it hits the mark. I take it that the highest proof of Christ's power is not that he offers salvation, not that he bids you take it if you will, But that when you reject it, when you hate it, when you despise it, he has a power whereby he can change your mind, make you think differently from your former thoughts, and turn you from the error of his ways. Now that's irresistible grace. And that is the mighty plan and power of the gospel God doing it, converting regenerating, and giving this gift of repentance. And so, when I repented, was it my repentance? No, it was really the repentance that God gave me. It was really the conviction that God put in my heart. And when I cried out for cleansing from my sin and freedom from it, it was me exercising the gift of repentance. Now, it was my repentance— I did the call, and I pleaded for mercy. But I know from the Word of God that behind anything that I did, there was this irresistible power, this sovereign, gracious working of the Spirit. Now, the last thing to look at here now is faith. God overcomes our denials and our doubts by bestowing faith. And God has to obviously overcome all the doubts, all the questionings, all the denials, all the atheism, all the arguments that man puts up. And so, how does he bring a sinner to faith? How does he bring him to actually believe? Well, let's look at some verses here. Firstly, John 5, verse 40. John 5, verse 40. Here is… man left to himself, and ye will not come to me that ye made of life. So, there's no faith there. There's no desire. There's no interest. There's no burning cry to get right with God. Ye will not come to me that ye made of life. Then chapter 644, it says, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And so we see this impasse Here is God providing salvation. He has sent his son to die for his people, but they don't want to come. They don't want to believe. They will not believe. They deny and doubt and go through all of that. So what is the answer? Well, God has to give the miracle of faith, and faith is the gift of God. Now, we're in John's gospel. Let's go back to John 1, verse 12. And we'll see here that faith is indeed the gift of God. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, to them that believe on his name. Now that verse 12 ends in a colon. And our translators in our Bible used a colon there because the sentence goes right into verse 13, You can't understand verse 12 without verse 13, which were born, not of blood. Now, we're not talking about natural birth. We're talking about supernatural, spiritual birth here. It's the new birth. Which were born or born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how did they believe it was the work of God? Then... John uh, 6, 44 and verse 45. Well, it says here, No man can come to me except the Father who would sent me draw him. And it says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. So here are these people who will not come, and then they're taught of God, and so they want to come. Now in Acts 14:27, there's another outstanding text. That uh, certainly establishes this. And it says, And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Now that's not Paul. Paul didn't open the door, God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And then there's that text we all know saved through faith. by it is the gift of God, not of works. And so, the Bible is replete with verse after verse after verse and statement after statement that shows that our salvation is the operation of God by his Spirit in our hearts. We cannot boast and say, well, am I wonderful because I believed? Am I wonderful because I chose the Lord and I came to him? I only did that because he was operating, working within my heart. And there's a verse that speaks about that operation in Colossians 2, through the faith of the operation of God, Colossians 2.12, it's a great text, through faith of the operation of God. And so, without a shadow of doubt, faith is God's gift. God did not offer salvation and say, God said, well, I did my part. Man has to do his part. That's not the the gospel the Bible presents. The Bible presents the gospel as something that God is the author of it. He's the finisher of it. And when he chooses and sends his Son to save his people when his blood is shed for them, then he sends his Spirit to operate within the heart and to draw them savingly to know the gospel and to accept the gospel. Now, here's a little bit of homework for you. Uh, as I wrap up here today, I want you to think about doing something. I want you to read through the New Testament. Now, you don't have to read it all. All you need to do is read about the first five verses in every one of the letters First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, and then Timothy and Titus, um, Hebrews, Peter, and so on. And when you read the, you know, the 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 prescript, the introductory statement that is often given in these letters, you will see how the writers address believers as those chosen of God, elect of God, um, accepted in the Beloved, There are many different terms used, but it adds up to the same thing that salvation is God's plan from beginning to end by which men are brought to believe and be saved and trust the Lord. Now, what does that mean for us today? This means that we should never be discouraged when we're preaching the gospel. We are living in a very hard time to be a gospel preacher or to be a gospel church, we've got empty seats. It it shows, doesn't it? We've got a battle on our hands to survive the task of preaching the gospel. We know that more people want to drive by the church than ever want to come into it. And we also know that there are many people that come into the church and hear this gospel and reject it. And so we could come to the conclusion and say, well, what's the point? We're here to do God's bidding. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, to every creature. And we have a responsibility as Christ's church to preach this gospel in the church and out of the church, wherever we possibly can. That's our business. That's our call. That's our commission. But only God can use it. But we do know that He has an elect, a people whom He will save. And so, our work is never in vain, It can seem that way at times, and sometimes there's little steps forward and steps backward. And we wonder why we're not conquering the world with this message of the gospel. Well, God didn't give the gospel to change the world. God gave the gospel to call a people out of the world into Christ and one day to glory. And getting a soul saved, God's design is not to make the world a better place— God is calling people for his own glory, that he gets the praise for now and eternity. This world's going to burn up anyway. We're not into ecology in the gospel. We take care of what we can, but this world is going to burn up. Our work is to preach this gospel with all our hearts and do so with passion that men may know that God has sent us to preach Christ and preach the way of salvation. And we've got to trust the Lord, whether it's many or few. We just trust the Lord to work His sovereign purpose. And when we come to prayer meetings to pray and ask God to revive His church, to touch the hearts of men, women, and young people with the gospel, which we do, we pray in faith not in faith that the world's full of nice, good people, but in faith that God has a program. God has a purpose. God has a ministry that he's going to fulfill, and we have the privilege of being a part of that. And so we pray, Lord, work your will. Lord, let your will in heaven be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your program be filled out in this ministry that you've called us to, You've put us here to preach Your Word. Lord, work out Your will. Turn the hearts of men. Save the lost. Bring glory to Your name by adding to the church and by preparing men for heaven. That's the mission. And with confidence we can pray. Not, Lord, everything depends on men. No, it's God's program. And we have confidence that on the eternal day, it will shine. You haven't seen anything yet of what God is going to do. And when we get to glory, we'll tell the story of all the Lord has done. Come ye sinners, poor and needy,
1: weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready, stands to save
0: You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. This is Ian Golliher, and the question we're dealing with here is, does God draw us to himself, or does he meet us partway and respond when we come close to him? Are we returning to the Lord and going to him in our own mind, our own energy, and then the Lord takes us in? Another way of putting this, is salvation an offer? Or is it a plan whereby God draws and leads us by his power and by his grace to trust in him? Now, I can understand after all that I've preached here today, the answer is that it's not man himself. It is God drawing us. But there is a sense in which God works in us to enable us to trust to enable us to repent, to enable us to believe the gospel. And that has to be the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in regeneration, bringing out of our dead, corrupt state, life, desire, and a yearning to get right with God. And so, through the, the, the preaching of the Word, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And as that word is read and that word is preached, God works by his Spirit to put that longing and that new desire to be saved, to be a Christian, to walk with God and serve him all our days, and thereby one day dwell with him in glory. I wonder, has that happened to you? Or is there this burning in your heart, but you've never settled the question of coming trusting in the Lord If the Lord is ministering to your heart, just bow the knee and trust him. Call on him to be your Savior. And certainly, if I can be of any personal help, feel free to give me a call, 604-576-1091. I look forward to hearing from you. Now, stay tuned as we come to the closing announcements.